Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by my brilliant half, Mina. Hello! For this episode, we read Getting Started with Rails in the Ruby on Rails Guides, chapters 5 through 7, auto-loading to credit where credit is due. Mina, did you learn anything that surprised you? I didn't learn anything new that surprised me, but I was maybe reminded about how quickly it is to spin up a fully functioning, albeit simple, Rails app. If you've been following along in the guide so far, you would have, like you said, a pretty simple but actual functioning, doing something application up and running by now. Yeah, I'm not sure what business value this has to any company, but... Our first section here is section five, auto-loading. And it's another one of these that is a couple of lines long, really. And it hints to what is to come in a later section of the guide. And that makes a lot of sense because you don't need to know a whole lot about the auto-loader to get something off the ground. But the Rails initialization phase and auto-loading are parts of Rails that I know very little about. So I'm super excited to get to those parts of the guides. And I'm just looking forward to that and seeing that here is giving me that little reminder, that little taste that we're going to get to dive into that later. Yeah, all these chapters had that, though there's a ton of to learn more about XYZ, you know, refer to this section, a later chapter of the Rails Guides. That's right. This really is an overview where you touch on a few things, you learn what maybe commands to put in or what keywords to use in your code, but it doesn't really go in in depth beyond what you need to get this very simple application up and going. And I don't know about you, but as somebody who's been working with Rails professionally for a few years now, I'm super excited to dive into that much deeper portion of the documentation. These couple of sections in the Getting Started page have felt a little bit like review, overview. I found myself wanting to skip forward a lot, uh, but then also finding myself regretting doing that whenever I do. And I'm like, no, no, I should read everything. And I go back and uh, just even the little bit of nuance that's given here is is worthwhile, I think. Yeah, I had to stop myself several times from clicking into those links that say to learn more, go to here. It's like, this is not, uh, that's not the trajectory of our journey. This is not the assignment. It's not. <laughs> uh, I think that one of the basic things that these chapters mention is the fact that Rails is an MVC framework. And I think that most of our listeners would have heard that term before. But do you want to talk any more about that? Sure. MVC is sort of the underlying architectural principle behind Rails, right? It's these three components of model, view, controller. Yeah, it says right here in the guides that MVC is a design pattern that divides the responsibilities of an application to make it easier to reason about. And I think it's one of those, it's an idea that's used far and wide outside of Rails. This is not something that Rails invented. It is just a pattern that is very conducive to the way that the folks that made Rails think about applications. And so that's that's the way they went with it. Yeah, as somebody who pivoted from a theater career for a long time, I wanted to come up with a maybe metaphor that explains MVC by mapping it to theatrical production roles. The view would be your actors and whatnot, but I couldn't come up with something that was that made a lot of sense. And for years, I'd been trying to come up with maybe a conference talk or a blog post that would explain MVC to somebody who is new to web development. But I don't think I've come up with a really great one. Hence, it's been years. But I remember that that was pretty helpful for you, even just thinking through what would this metaphor be? It helped you understand these different terms, right? Like when the metaphor started to break down, that is a bit of information about the thing that you're trying to define. That's a good point. I was, I think, trying to make up some content 
to come out of that. Yeah, to have something to show for your struggle back then. But I think your understanding of MVC now is what you have to show for that. There's something that I thought about while I was reading about the MVC uh, mention, even though it's not a very long kind of description in these chapters, but the concept is repeated in the way that the guides lead you through implementing each of the CRUD actions. Every time they get to an action, they're like, yes, we'll do a controller action and it's something's going to happen in the model and then we're going to render a view. As somebody who hasn't ever built a Rails monolith professionally, I still think of Rails as MVC, even though I've never actually written few templates for money. Is that weird? No, I don't think that's weird at all, actually. And so let me understand that. Are you saying that you feel like without HTML view templates that Rails doesn't meet the definition of MVC? No, quite the opposite, actually, because in my mind it does, but it seems like conceptually it doesn't exist in that. Or does it? Are we talking about view, the view being the JSON that it returns? I think it absolutely does, especially because you can write view templates that is model name.json.erb. And I would actually say that following that convention might be a way that you'd want to go instead of having your controllers or your models have a big hash that calls to JSON. Ooh, fascinating. <laughs> I can see the gears spinning over the video call right now. <laughs> Yeah, I think we might have to come back to that when we get to the deep dive portions of the chapter. It gives me some kind of time to contemplate what you just said. Yeah, I really hope that there is a section that will talk about all of the different ways that you can use templating and that V portion of Rails, because I think you're right. Most people think of it, first of all, as HTML.erb being that view layer. Speaking of ERB, we've got our little open pointy bracket percent sign and open pointy bracket percent sign equals. How do you refer to those if you're pairing or talking about code? I recently heard one of the other thoughtbotters called them ice cream cones, and that's what I will be referring to them as from now on. 100%. I love that one, ice cream cones. The other one that I've got is for when it's a to render the output with the equal signs, I usually call those squids because they look like a little squid zooming through the ocean. So maybe ice cream cone is the one without the equal sign and the and squids are the ones with the equal signs. I love it. And closing ice cream cones. Ice cream cone if squid at model dot title. I like it. In our pre-recording planning shared note, I think we both made a note of singular model names, which the docs mention that Rails models are conventionally named singularly. What are your feelings about that? Uh, I guess I have complicated feelings with the plural, not plural parts of Rails. That is one of the conventions that gets me into trouble the most, I think. Uh, I can never remember, is this one plural? Is this one singular? And there'll be a lot of times where uh, I'll type one and of course it won't work because it's the wrong one and I have to, to go back and, and do it the other way. I know they all make sense. And if you think about it, you can follow the reasoning behind each and every one of those decisions, but it just doesn't stick in my head. Definitely. It tripped me up for a long time and it is still commonly a big source of bugs, which are those things that you track down and you're like, I smack your forehead and say, how did I forget that every time? Now that I'm thinking about it, I can't think of a place where, besides database tables, where Rails refer to a model in the plural. 
Well, there's a lot of places. Um, actually, well, I don't know if it's a lot, but uh, I can think of another one right off the bat of view path helpers. Sometimes they will be singular or plural, and they will refer to completely different paths. So a word that you brought up that we hadn't encountered yet in the guides is resource. So that's defined here, actually. Whenever we have such a combination of routes, controller actions, and views that work together to perform CRUD operations on an entity, we call that entity a resource. Does that match up with your kind of mental model or conceptualization of what it means to be a resource? It does and it doesn't. So I do know that resources as a route method means that you are defining routes, all of the kind of crowd action routes for a certain model. But in everyday use, I use the word resource almost like the same way I use entity to kind of refer to a model or a thing that is in my system. For sure. I first kind of had a strong reaction when I read that because I thought that that didn't really line up with how I might use resource more day to day because in sticking pretty strongly to restful routing, I have a lot of things that are resources that are actually sort of ephemeral ideas that aren't backed by a database table or different things like that. And I kind of bristled a little bit of like, oh, this, they're defining it to be much more narrow than the way that I mean it. But looking back on it a little while later, I realized that it doesn't say anything about where that data is. It doesn't say that it's an active record model. It doesn't say that it has a database table. And so where I first thought that it was kind of narrowly defining it, it turns out out that it does actually meet my conception in a lot of different ways. And I think that's absolutely the way I think of resources. There's usually something that you can define as a resource, even if it's just like a search query and different things like that. Did you have the same experience reading that uh, paragraph as I did where I didn't really understand what they mean when they said, when you have these things that work together, that's called a resource. And in my mind, I felt like that meant that if you had a model that had a single route with a single controller action with a single view, when those are linked together, that's a resource. But I think they really meant... If you read a little further on, when they refer to the routing method, what they really meant a resource to be is an entity that has all four of those actions. That's certainly what the, the method implies, right? That's what it gives you and links to um, under the hood. Yeah, I don't feel that it's necessarily all of those actions, but I think something that had only one route, uh, one action, one view is going to be a pretty limited resource, right? So um, my first thought there would be, are you conceptualizing this resource in the most usable way for the application? So yeah, I think a resource has more than one CRUD action that can be taken on it. Maybe some of those actions are restricted to certain kinds of users. I think a resource would in general have more than one of those CRUD operations, that's for sure. Something else that was introduced in these chapters was the Rails console, which is an interactive session opened in your application environment with your application code where you can run or test your Rails code before kind of implementing it into the code base. So that, I think, is a very familiar debugging tool for Rails developers. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. My first reflex is always like throw binding.pry in there. Let's open a console. Let's play around with it. That's my first reflex. So Aji, I don't think you're alone in that. Most Rails developers, I believe, would agree with you in that 
the Rails console is one of the first things they reach for when debugging something that is not right. So I have a question for you. <laughs> I'm going to switch on my DevOps engineer hat out for the Rails developer hat that I was just wearing and ask, how would you feel if you didn't have access to the Rails console in production in order to debug problems? First off, can I ask, what does your DevOps engineer hat look like? Can you describe it for us? I'm imagining it like a construction site hard hat. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, I like that. I like that image. That's a good image. Um, so if I didn't have access to the Rails console in production, I would be absolutely thrilled. I don't think that the console should be turned on in production. It's way too dangerous. Yeah, definitely. But then again... Like you were saying, that is the number one debugging tool Rails devs reach for often. And as I understand it, Heroku makes it really easy to open up a console session in your production environment. Imagining that all of us are not malicious actors and have the application and the codebase's best interest in mind is a really powerful tool. I'm sure it cuts down debugging time, especially in a production outage or production problem scenario where time is of the essence, what would be your alternative if you didn't have that? So one of the things that I try to do as quickly as possible is find a way to reproduce it locally so that I can get back to my console. If the issue is something that is going to need a code change, then I will certainly want to be able to make that issue happen in my local environment, and then I would have access to the Rails console. And barring that, I am going to hope that the application has robust and sophisticated enough in-application tooling to be able to look at the data at a level that might be required. I think that that's something that often gets left behind as it's not a user-facing application feature to give super users, let's call them, greater access to some of what's going on in the application and being able to inspect the data as it's flowing around. I think that that's a very important part of an application that, like I said, gets overlooked because it's not like user-facing value, but it really is user-facing value if you're able to fix a problem for someone or some customers having a support issue that you just have no visibility on. Having a tool at the front lines, say, of the support team before it comes back to the engineering team that's building the code in the first place, giving them the tools to be able to solve that problem without having to get all the way to the back end and doing something as drastic as touching the data directly. Uh, I think that's uh, super important. Yeah, certainly. I think that from a bigger picture perspective, lots of developers will agree with you when you say that the less access you have to production environment and production data, the better. But I think practically, because we're so used to it, the Rails console being missing from an environment could be something that you have to take some time to get used to. But I think something you mentioned earlier is a really great alternative is reproducing that bug locally. So you can get back to access to the console and kind of do all the debugging things you need to locally. For sure. Yeah. Don't give me production access. I don't want it. I mean... I, I need it, of course, to do my job sometimes, but you're right. Give me as little access as possible. I want sharp knife, but a very limited sharp knife. And I feel like the console is, it's more like a lightsaber in that you're swinging it around, but if it touches you at all, you're just as dead. Good point. Being able to reproduce it locally not only gets it back, gets you back into the Rails console, it also shortens that feedback loop. You don't have to 
deploy that code in order to see if it worked. So benefit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially if you can write a test that exercises what the bug is happening and you can just have that test running as you're changing and saving code, that feedback loop becomes almost instantaneous. And that's really the ideal situation. Not that you can always hit that very easily, but that's always where I'll try to get to. Cool. So chapter seven is called Credit Where Credit Is Due, and boy, do they love their crud puns in this section. Do you want to give a really quick summary of what CRUD is for people that might not have heard that acronym before? Yeah, of course. So CRUD stands for Create, Read, Update, and Delete, Destroy. And it's essentially the four sort of main actions that you can take on an entity, a model in any given application. I feel like the web is mostly CRUD. That's true. Every application you're going to be making is essentially some version of a CRUD app, and it might come at it from a very different way, but it's it's all CRUD when you get down to the bottom. <laughs> being able to manipulate resources or data that are important to your system. Web development is just concatenating strings. A little bit higher than that, it's just CRUD. Truly chapter seven, this chapter about CRUD is where most of the content happens in these chapters. Lots of examples and guidances and instructions. This is the first part of the guides where it felt like a lot of other tutorials that you'll find for libraries or frameworks. It was, we're going to type this, you're going to run it, and nothing's going to happen. There's a little bit of digging into what's going on behind it, but mostly it was, do this, and we'll get to the end and you'll have a working thing. And it's leaving those links that have been so enticing to us to go to the other parts of the guides to dig in deeper. Yeah, and this is the section where I realized or was reminded what a powerful framework Rails really was, because really, these aren't very long. So chapter seven is the longest of these chapters, but it's not truly very long, considering the fact that at the end of it, you have a pretty fully operational application. You can create things, you can read from it, you can update entities and destroy them. And it's essentially like we were saying, from a very basic level, all of the web. Right. But there were a couple of concepts, I think, or features of Rails that they mentioned in this chapter that I hadn't really thought deeply about or had forgotten, to be quite honest. Or had taken for granted, like strong params. I never thought about strong params as anything other than something that you kind of have to remember as a Rails dev or it's going to become a gotcha when you're creating your controller actions or that something you have to contend with when you get those invalid param errors. But they go a little deeper into kind of the reasoning behind that. I don't know about you, Aji. Had you thought about this before? Because I had never thought about why strong params existed in the first place, except to trip me up. Uh, and that might just be because of how it was introduced to me at Dev Bootcamp. But yeah, I, I did know the reasoning behind that being that you want to limit what parameters your application is going to be able to accept. If someone were to maliciously put in another attribute that a form doesn't offer updating, but you just threw all of the user's input into your update action, they could be changing data that you don't want them to be changing. Now that it's kind of explicitly said, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering why I had never thought about that before. Just too busy getting frustrated by it, I guess. Maybe. It's also one of those things where I was in 
my first interview coming out of boot camp, and it was a pairing interview. And the person I was pairing with presented me with a Rails bug that we wanted to kind of work together to get through. And I had navigated all the way through to a solution. At the end, the one thing I forgot about was strong params because between that interview and when I learned about strong params, it had been over a year. And my interviewer was very kind, and he said, "Oh, you know, this is a Rails thing, and unless you kind of." Have that knowledge, like it's not necessarily something you would know about. And at that moment, I was like, I'm gonna file this away as like a Rails gotcha, and then I just never asked about it again. I used it. I just like never really like thought about it again. Yeah, that comes back to one of the powerful and also potentially dangerous parts of Rails is that it lets you use these things, and they've been thought through. And if you're following conventions and best practices, you're gonna have a pretty secure and pretty A robust application, but when you're doing something that's more advanced, or maybe you don't know the reason why you're doing a particular convention, and it might slip your mind, that these kind of things can come back to bite you. For sure, the way I dealt with that was very uncharacteristic of me because I feel like usually I'm like, yes, but why does this thing exist, or why are we using this thing? But like for some reason with Stromperams, I was just like, it's a thing. Well, it's a high stakes situation, right? Being in a pairing interview, especially for your first job coming out of boot camp. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to impress my new teammates, and I was like, I'm never going to forget that again. That's really all I used my bandwidth for. I really love that. Even interviewing Mina is like, I'm going to impress my new teammates. That's good positive thinking right there. <laughs> Thanks. The only other thing that really kind of came up for me here is we got introduced to view partials, and in some work that I've been doing, partials can get kind of nested and layered, and it made me think of things like React components, where you have to traverse a whole bunch of different files just to see the one thing that's getting displayed on the page, or the thing that looks like it's just one thing, but it's actually several different components and several different files. And I'm wondering if. This might not be a question for you, but for the audience, because you don't work in these view templates very often. But I wonder if there's an ergonomic way to work with these partials—a code editor plugin that will let you jump right to the partial when your cursor is over it, or something. And now I'm scared that if there isn't, did I just volunteer myself to write a Vim plugin? You should do it. I was afraid you were going to say something like that. <laughs> You're right, though. I. Don't often work with templates or what are they partials in Action View land, but I was working in something called Helm charts, which is a tool that generates Kubernetes manifests, which are config files for you from templates. So it's a very similar thing. They also have I don't know what they're called in that land, probably just templates, but it's similar. It's the idea of partials. So maybe if you make that Vim plugin, you can make it framework and language agnostic and just.、Ooh. That that's tough because each framework is going to have their own syntax and their own way of conceptualizing what a partial is. So I'll leave that to other folks, and I'll make a Rails one. As we're looking at controllers in these examples here, it also mentions that instance variables get passed on from the controller to the view, and it made me think of very recently I was reviewing a PR from a teammate, and there were two instance variables in a controller, not much else. It's still a pretty simple, pretty clean controller action, but I remember then as well as I had now, I had a very strong sense of one of Sandy Metz's four rules, and I realized. 
realized reading this that I personally try to adhere to that pretty strongly, for better or for worse. But that rule that I was thinking of, rule I'm sure should be put in quotes here, but it is that controllers can instantiate only one object. Views can only know about one instance variable, and views should only send messages to that object. How do you feel about that rule? Considering that I was reminded just a couple days ago about controllers passing instance variables to view templates, I honestly don't have a ton of strong feelings here. But I think that as much as possible, that makes sense. Keeping kind of the data flow simple uh, and clear and easy to follow. I don't believe anything in web development is a hard and fast rule, with some exceptions, I'm sure. But it's one of those things that it's like, is this a good principle to? attempt to adhere to, yes. The PR that I'm talking about here that kind of queued up this story for me, I did approve it with those two instance variables. It was adhering to the spirit of that rule, if not the precise definition of it, right? The idea of skinny controllers, fat models, which is maybe something we'll get to. I don't know if that actually gets mentioned canonically in the guides, we'll see. But it was an interesting experience to see something laid out very plainly in the guides and have these connections to my own experience and to the ways that I felt about code and just simple descriptions of these tools that we use that kind of queued up a lot of different feelings or reactions in myself. And I'm looking forward to that happening more often as we go through the guides. Did these two instance variables or things that they're passing into the view share a parent? Could you have passed a parent into the view and then dotted off of those? I don't remember exactly, but I think it's the second half of that rule that sort of addresses, I think, what you're getting at a little bit, that the object that gets passed through as the instance variable should be the only thing that the view sends messages to. So if you have parent.model.attribute, then it's not anymore. It's sending it to another object through that first object. So would it make sense for the view to ask that of the parent? And if not, then I think you've got more going on in that view than is maybe necessary. I think the solution here is to abstract it into like a presenter object. I think in this situation in particular, that would have been a little bit too much. It would have been over abstracting. In that instance, it was perfectly reasonable for those two instance variables to go through. I am glad that I went through the process of thinking about that principle and went through the practice of interrogating the code that I was seeing, but also not sticking to that rule so stringently that we got into hard to understand, but very theoretically correct and precise code. This opens up a lot of conversation probably around principle and how hard and fast you should adhere to quote unquote rules. Having that discussion in relation to Rails framework where it's very opinionated like we were talking about last week. I want to say that these rules are all suggestions and like in a way they are, but like sometimes it's just like hard to work around and Rails discourages some of that work around. And I think this conversation could be an entire episode to be quite honest. Oh, for example, like Rails makes it not impossible, but difficult to use anything but the ID as the primary key. You can definitely use any of the database columns as a primary key, but you have to do some backflips and tracking it is not as easy and you lose some of that built-in functionality. For sure. And you also lose that sort of team. Shorthand. Yeah. That benefit that you have of someone else coming into the application and understanding things right away because it follows convention. You really have to consider 
when you're going to be breaking those conventions and how much benefit you're going to get. Because like everything, unfortunately, it's all trade-offs and the answer is frustratingly, usually, it depends. Yes, certainly. Aji, do you want to talk about your talk at RailsConf, which we are both going to be at in Atlanta in a week's time? My talk at RailsConf this year, which is 2023, if you're listening to this in the far future, is called Hotwiring My React Brain. I have worked with a React front-end to a Rails API mode back-end for several years now, but my latest project is Rails all the way up and down, and it's about trying to teach some of the learnings that I took away from having to reconceptualize how to approach front-end problems and how to solve them. It sounds very cool, and... Lots of people seem very excited about it. That doesn't make me nervous at all. No pressure. All right, let's wrap up. For the next episode, we are going to be reading chapters A through 13 of Getting Started in the Rails Guides. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social. Or you can give us an email at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found in your podcast player or at tightlycoupled.dev. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> I feel like I had something else to... Alternative tools? Did you want to ask that? Didn't I? Oh, you did. I just didn't answer it. <laughs>